Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. It's a great pleasure to have on the show today. Well, it's not a great pleasure to have my usual co-hosts, uh, <laughs> Amy Bird and that other guy. Um, what's his name, Amy? Tom. Tom. Right. Tom right. Pruitt. Yeah, Tom Pruitt. Uh, it's great to have, uh, well, great to have Amy. Almost great to have Tom. Uh, and as a special guest, we have my long-standing colleague and dear friend from Westminster Theological Seminary, Professor William Edgar, better known as Bill Edgar who is Professor of Apologetics, an accomplished jazz musician, and a winsome and very helpful author of some excellent books uh, covering everything from culture through to evangelism. And we want to talk to him today about his forthcoming book, Does Christianity Really Work? Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Carl. Great to be with you. So does it work? Well, first of all, I would, I would want people to know this is a new series that Dr. Edgar has contributed to from Christian Focus. Um, it's, if the series is called The Big Ten, um, you know, dealing with, with critical questions. And uh, doc, Dr. Edgar's volume is one of the first two that has now just been released. Does Christianity really work? What are you, uh, what are you telling us that? Well, believe it or not, that was a very hard title for me because... <laughs> I don't believe Christianity because it works, right. but it does work because right. it's true. Yeah. And so what I wrestled with in this book um, was taking, on the one hand, all the places where c- the Christian faith has influenced history positively, healthcare, you know, human rights, and just all these marvelous uh, reforms. But on the other hand, I had to face the issues where Christians were not on the right side, and so I tackled apartheid. Um, I looked at how long it took to recognize slavery, chattel slavery as an evil. And I tried to, um, not to, to whitewash it, but to say, here the church needs seriously to, to repent and start again. So I, I, it was a hard book to write, but because you want to get the balance straight, the faith has contributed enormous amounts for the good of history, and it's very fashionable today to deny all that and call it colonization. But then there are enormous dark spots, mm-hmm. and um, we have to recognize those and move on. Yeah. How do you explain that to the skeptic? I know that's a big question, but part of the, the, the point of this new series, which I'm very excited about, is to address some of these common barriers that skeptics will, will throw up. And it's not unusual to hear, well, Christianity has done enormous bad in the world, just go with that a little bit, if you don't mind, as far as what, what are some of the common barriers you're trying to address for the skeptic? Sure. Well, not to be simplistic, but uh, the Christian faith predicts the failure of all people, mm-hmm. including Christians. Now, that's not a cop-out because we don't want to use that as an excuse. Every time something goes wrong, well, we said we were sinners. Every time it goes right, well, we said Christ is building his church. Mm-hmm. But um, what is impressive is the way in most of those cases it may have taken too much time, but eventually Christians saw the light and made amends. Apartheid is a perfect example mm-hmm. of that. You know, it was hopeless 
according to all of the journalists, according to Henry Kissinger, he gave up on it, you know. And it was a couple of Christians who met privately as well as in public who brokered a deal based on their common faith that was able to come to a coalition government and move forward. Now, the problems aren't all solved in South Africa, but, you know, that's an example of where the, the church was able to recognize a problem that it, in part, contributed to, and then to move on because of its realism. Are these kind of objections that you find pretty frequently when you're talking to non-Christians, Bill? I mean, is it typical when, when you speak to a non-Christian, they'll come up with the, the big questions rather than saying, you know, why did my grandmother die or why does this happen to me? Do you find that people do come up with the big world questions typically? Those are the things that are burning in people's minds? You know, I do. I do find that they come up with the big questions, the problem of evil, science, and faith. Um, why are there so many religions? And they're good and real problems, and you have to tackle them. But often, what they won't say, because it might be a public setting or it might be embarrassing, is that these are also, I was going to say masks. They're not masks, but they're um, presentation ways of telling a problem of their heart. You know, why do they have the problem of evil? It's a huge philosophical problem, but basically it's because God disappointed them or they lost a loved one or um, they have an idea of God that they grew up with because they were in a harsh legalistic context and um, they don't like God, you know, and, and so those things are there psychologically. So you have to you have to honor them and treat the big problem, but you want to probe a little bit and see whether their views are also based on some unfortunate experiences they may have had. Mm-hmm. So, counseling, um, it's not my strong point, but I, you know, I think pastorally approaches to people are as important as you know settling the philosophical mm-hmm. issues. That's good. That's such a good point. Um, to being pastoral when you're answering these big apologetic questions, have you found over the years? that you have to approach it differently or that the questions have changed any or in apologetics, particularly with evangelism, have you found, you know, looking at this title, does Christianity really work? How how has your witnessing changed? Sure. I mean, the basics don't change. People live with the big issues that Carl mentioned and they wrestle with sin and, um, they need a savior. But it's interesting over the decades how the headlines changed somewhat. When I was a young Christian in the 60s, a lot of the discussion was about science and um, whether the Bible could be trusted uh, in the face of so-called scientific discoveries. And, you know, we got pretty good at, at answering those things. There were, there were other questions as well that were, that were in the air. And then over the decades, it's become much more things like... Um, is Christianity oppressive? Is it oppressive to minorities, to, to women, to gays, to, you know, you, you name the subcategory. And so in a public setting, I'll often get much more questions about the, the problem of colonization, colonization of the mind, than I would get about science. You can get some of those. And then the, the relatively new factor, it was there, but we just didn't see it, um, because it's more aggressive today, is the rise not of atheism or even non-theistic objections, but of theistic objectors. I'm thinking 
Muslims and other uh, kind of new age things and, and that sort of thing. They don't have any problem with God. It's just what God and how do you answer them? And so that's made us go back to the drawing boards um, and, and look very carefully at an issue that we hadn't studied very carefully. So yeah, same perennial issues are always there, but the surface um, is different. Do you think that this shift to what we might call the ethical in terms of objections requires a different strategy on part of the church. I mean, one of the things that I'm struck by reading, for example, Rosaria Butterfield's testimony is that the language of community that the LGBTQ community uses is real language. They they do have a community. They're a strong, it, it may in some ways be the place in the Western world today where you find the strongest friendships. Friendship is something that's become very attenuated in general in the West. And it, it raises the question for me of, how does the church evangelize the LGBTQ community? Because it's not simply an intellectual issue. It's an ethical issue, but it's not even just an ethical issue at the level of the legitimacy of particular forms of sexual expression. It's an ethical issue at the level of community. And you can't expect somebody to leave one community and join nothing. I mean, Rosario Butterfield makes the point in her book that when she's converted, her life becomes a total train wreck. She loses all her friends. Mm. Do you think that the church needs to think, without going down a social gospel direction, but the church needs to think very carefully about what it means to be a community so that when we reach out to groups like that, uh, they re- I won't say we make conversion easier because conversion is an act of God, of course, but we make it humanly easier by providing a community for somebody to join straight away. The same thing would apply to a Muslim. I mean, a Muslim converts to Christianity it's not like a shoplifter converting to Christianity no. where the life remains much the same. They just don't shoplift anymore. They lose everything. And we need as a church to think about evangelism in much more holistic terms. What, what do you think about that? Bill? Well, I, I don't think I could say it much better. I, I wholeheartedly agree. You know, without losing the proclamation of the word, which always has to be primary, um, the plausibility of the faith depends on things like providing um, community um, you know, all of the cults, um, certainly uh, the gay and lesbian community, certainly Islam, are um, in part, in large part, based on the security that a community gives. And we get Jehovah's Witnesses at our door, and uh, when you dig a little, drill down a little bit, it turns out what they really are selling is is the fellowship of Kingdom mm-hmm. Hall, not not the crazy views that they yeah. have. Now, one of the other elements of plausibility which I feel very strongly about, is that we we have to somehow communicate to our gay, lesbian, bisexual, and so forth friends that their narrative, which is like a civil rights narrative, has been hijacked. Now, you won't put it so negatively, um, so in your face, but the African-American friends that I have deeply resent the narrative of, oh, I was in the closet, nobody understood me, I... I'm now free because I'm accepted. There's, some, there's a little bit of truth to that, but um, the, the narrative is so entirely different for the civil rights movement, uh, particularly in the 60s when it was much more Christian. And so we have to give them, you know, not just verses from Leviticus that are against it, but an, a counter-narrative that says Christianity is far better romance than you can imagine in the narrative that you're using i don't i can say that i don't know how to do it very well but i think we need to offer them a counter 
narrative, community counter narrative, and and um, just the, the the apologetic truth that if you are going to define your happiness by an autonomous choice of the self, you're going to end up empty, no matter how much you think that choice fits your needs, your aspirations. And there's so many testimonies about that. Charles Taylor, who's somebody that Carl and I both admire, in his book, The Sources of the Self, talks about how today the self is this kind of source of of all choice-making and that no pre-established ethics or program universe setting is going to determine who I am. I'm going to determine who I am. And then he makes the next point. Um, it can't answer the problem of death, and it can't answer the problem of, of angst and alienation. And so you think you're free and you're fulfilling all your deep desires, but actually you're, you're casting yourself into an, ab- an abyss. And I think we need to say that to, in the atmosphere of today where it's all about um, the self-centered self. Mm-hmm. I really think a lot, too, about um, with Rosaria's word, she keeps talking about the stranger at the gate. And I've been thinking about this more as I have teenage daughters mm. who are in public school. And um, so there was a troubled kid who my daughter invited to church. Seems like the right thing to do, right? <laughs> she befriends this kid. He's kind of been hanging out with, with our group a little bit. Clearly has a lot of issues. And he was adopted at a late age, so he has some maturity issues definitely there that he'll deal sure. with the rest of his life. But um, So she picks him up, and she brings him, and we're parking at the same time. And they're walking up the parking lot, and I hear the F word come out of his mouth. And I'm thinking, how many other people from the church just heard, <laughs> you know, this, and do they think that that's her boyfriend, you know, and all this other stuff? And I'm thinking of what everybody else thinks. And then, and Matt said, did he just say what I think he did? And I said, yeah. And, I, and then, I, you know, it just kind of hit me. I'm like, I guess he's in the right place. <laughs> I mean, once he walks through the doors, he knows how to behave in a holy place. Right, right. But um, thankfully, I have a pastor who, you know, reached out to him immediately, invited him to lunch. And a couple weeks later, there's a Bible in our mailbox that he wants to make sure this kid gets and, you know, is trying to get him to keep coming. But um, do are we willing to kind of, mm-hmm. and I know this is kind of overused language, which get ourselves a little dirty um, as far as actually entering into a relationship with people who, you know, certainly aren't like us. Yeah, tremendous point. I mean, those are exactly the kind of people we want in our church. Right, right. Uh, David Robertson. But do we? Um, <laughs> That's, that yeah. was the question I had to ask. Do I really want? Well, that I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> David Robertson, who's a minister in the Free Church in Dundee, some of you know, he just loves it when alternative people show up in his church. Now, he goes after them and he loves them and, and you know, but he, he doesn't want his church to be a place where unless you're properly dressed and, and you know, sing on the right notes, you, you're not welcome. And David I, is never properly dressed. You know, I didn't say no experience. Uh, he yeah. just wants people like him. <laughs> I was going to say, he's exotic enough. Just, yeah, yeah. Uh, I hope that, you're out there, David. <laughs> well, yeah, um, you probably know this story, and I'm going to forget the names, but you remember a few years ago when the head of Chick-fil-A, which is a ostensibly Christian company that doesn't work on Sundays and so forth, it was leaked that he was for the traditional family and, right. and, and a big deal. was critical of, of uh, the gay lifestyle. And suddenly it got all this media attention and including the mayor of Boston says, well, his business is not welcome yeah. here. How, how tolerant is that? 
Um, he, on his own, decided to reach out to the head of the campus gay, lesbian, and so forth movement uh, power group. And at, at first, he was a little suspicious. What, what does he want from me? But they just kind of became friends. And um, over, over the months, they really became friends, and, and they didn't change their views. They disagree, but they enjoyed each other. And then recently, the guy, the power guy, was invited to one of the bowls. I forget which one that Chick-fil-A supports. It's not the chicken bowl. There isn't. <laughs> um, he, was, he was presented arm in arm, and uh, all of his, not all, but a number of his colleagues gave him enormous flack. Yes. And he said, look, I'm here because I really like this guy. Yeah. I'm not here because I agree with him. And um, that, I think we need to do a lot more of that. Right. You know. mm-hmm. That's difficult. Mm-hmm. It is. Dr. Edgar, as a pastor, I get lots of questions from people in my church about how to answer people in their lives who are coming to them with some of these big questions. And what would you say to a pastor? What are some, maybe just a, a couple best practices or good ideas for, here are some practical things you can do to help equip your people. Now, this is a big question, I know, but if you could just name off a few things. Pastors, Help you can help your people answer or at least deal with some of these questions if you'll do a little more of this or a little more of that. Does that make sense? Sure. Well, uh, the basics are, are the same. So in First Peter, you know, we're told to be ready to give uh, a reason for the hope that you have and do it gently. Now that readiness involves first really being grasped yourself by the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only be sincere in offering the gospel to someone if if it's been life changing to me, yeah. um, and that's not. I don't mean just to reduce it to a mantra, uh, but it's all that the gospel implies, which is a lot. It's yeah. everything, and so then um, preparedness for today's issues. I could throw out a whole a whole lot of things. Uh, one is what we've just talked about that uh, challenging people about. Um, the assumption that the self is autonomous. It isn't, and here's why, and you don't even act that way, and so forth. Another would be, in the larger setting, we are no longer in the Cold War. I mean, some people think we still are, and maybe there's vestiges, but since 1989, it isn't, you know, America, the Allies, right. uh, Soviets, and the godless people. Um, it's much more fragmented, and um, while America might have been the uh, leader of the free world in the post-war years, post-Second World War, that's up for grabs today. We, we may lose that, and for, for good reason, and um, maybe we should lose it. But we have to prepare people not to confuse believing in the gospel for a particular national position, right. a political party, right. heaven forbid. Um, and that's, for some American Christians, that's a hard thing, yeah. because they... They allied themselves with the right or the Republicans, um, not very um, carefully, right. and th- they've been let down. And now, you know, even the word evangelical is a bad word. So they're a bit at sea. So I think equipping them to see the the big picture of of history is 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 really important. Yeah. And then just the basics of how do I deal with the problem of evil, science and faith, world religions, Islam. Churches need to be talking about these things directly. Yeah. Pastors yeah. need to be, yeah. Yeah, and it's um, it's not only 
necessary and, and urgent, but it's kind of interesting to, to be able to do that, to relate Christianity to history and right. to where we are today. Yeah. And the fact is, the people who are struggling with those questions aren't just the friends, the lost friends of the members of our church, but they're the members of our church also. Indeed. Who are struggling with those. And so, yeah. yeah. And we do, we want to be careful not to act like a tribe. We've, we have said that we're a fellowship and we have community, and, and that's wonderful. Um, but we don't want that community to be uh, insular. I think mm-hmm. when I sit down and listen to the sermon, and we have a we have a wonderful church and great preacher, I sometimes try to imagine I have a lot of unbelieving family, and they're they're wonderful people. They're just not believers. I'm trying to imagine them sitting with me. What would they make of this message? And my conclusion is, it's not that they'd be against it. They wouldn't understand it. Yeah. It's it's a foreign language, and um, so we we I think we have to change our language and learn to, as you were saying, um, get, get dirty with, with uh, the world, which is not a, a clean, safe place anymore. And just building Christian schools, Christian churches, Christian everything, it has its place. But if, 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 if what you're doing is isolating yourself or pillarizing your faith, it's just going to be, you're going to be further marginalized. We already are. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be even further, and we'll just be irrelevant. If not, if not, uh, irrelevant will be considered the enemy. Yeah. You know, will be people will be hostile to us. Not just oh, aren't they funny people? It'll be they're dangerous people. You know? So if we leave love out of our apologetic, then we have a fundamentally handicapped apologetic mm. at that point. Amen to yep. that. Yeah. Change of tack, Bill. Jazz. <laughs> well, let me introduce. Let oh. me set this up. Sorry. <laughs> Amy, we should have known so. better. <laughs> Two years ago, like I heard you're, you know, dubbed the most interesting man in, in Westminster. Oh, he, he is. <laughs> no. And, and, and no, I got. It's clearly not Carl. <laughs> yeah, it's not is. Carl. I mean. I'm but, the most well loved man. <laughs> I, I uh, highly he, doubt that. He's, a, <laughs> he's the kind of Universally admired. <laughs> <laughs> and I had read your Schaefer on the Christian Life, yeah. so I had known a little, you know, I love that series. Come on, get on with it. The this alo- is the set. Be quiet. This question. is my time. Come on. This is like Move Fox. along, <laughs> guys. <are>, move along. <laughs> <laughs> Be quiet, Carl. Fox News. Okay. So anyway, one thing I love about that series is you really get to know um, the theologian that the series is doing there, but you also get to know the author a lot, too, in this series, the biographer of it. And so I felt like I got, you know, I felt like it was like Bill and Fran that I was reading about in, in that book. But then I'm invited, you know, we were invited to come to the Westminster Pastors Conference, and this was two years ago, my first time here. And I can't remember who the woman was, but she was introduced to sing a song for us. And, um, you know, she had a lovely voice, and she was built up, you know, before she came up to sing. But I was mesmerized by the piano player, and I didn't know that it was Bill Edgar playing the piano at the time. And I remember talking to Todd afterwards. I couldn't take my eyes off of you. I said, who was that playing the piano? And then yeah. Todd gave me the whole Just fun to, spiel. To watch. Yeah. And I mean, I immediately on my way home, you know, I downloaded the Heaven in a Nightclub. What a cool name for an album. <laughs> Heaven in a Nightclub. <laughs> so please tell us a little bit about your... Oh jazz band. Yeah, because yeah, if I, you don't know, Dr. That is Edgar, a very long way of saying, tell us about jazz. That's <laughs> <laughs> more about interesting than what you were going to say. They're all yeah. friends, I guess. Hey, pipe down over there. Yeah. <laughs> well, the groveling sycophancy took a long time. That's all I was saying. So as, as Carl knows, I'm secretly disguised as a professor and an academic, but my, <laughs> my heart is in the, on the bandstand. Um, so I grew up with, with jazz, and I was fortunate to be brought up in a family that didn't believe there was a choice to make between classical 
and jazz or you know serious music and popular music we we listened to it all my mother had two she was from uh north carolina she had two requirements for her boys um by the age of five or six they had to learn how to swim because we grew up in a little town um on the seacoast um and we had to learn to dance <laughs> can, really? can we say this on your program absolutely yeah. um, <laughs> give us a demonstration no, that's, that's, that's we would clear the furniture in the room and and she would take us through the steps of the charleston and so forth and so on so it was just in my that's veins fabulous. um yeah. we need a video oh, yeah. no it's not a, it's not a pretty sight uh, <laughs> you kind of dance when you play the piano i know you I, the black I, bottom I, as well <laughs> i know i'm apparently um I make grimaces and stuff. But anyway, <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, so I got to college and majored in music, fully thinking I was going to be a professional musicologist, which studies the history and the theory. I wasn't a good enough performer to go professional. I, I was pretty sure of that. So I um, studied, believe it or not, at Harvard University. My emphasis was on jazz music. And studied the history of it and got completely fascinated by the background of this music that I've always loved. Then, as you know, I became a Christian at Labrie. And besides Francis Schaeffer, the other larger-than-life mentor there was a man named Hans Ruckmacher, who was a Dutch professor of art, of art history and the European expert on early American jazz. He was the publisher of the Fontana series, Riverside, and his, his uh, liner notes are, are worth gold. He tried to convince us, convince me anyway, that the uh, evolution of jazz music and the aesthetic sensibility of, of black people from slavery to today had everything to do with the gospel. Hmm. Uh, it was a narrative um, from very great misery to deep joy. And he showed how the connections were made. He, he made some connections that you, you have to think about. Like he thought New Orleans jazz was the best because it was most like Baroque music. I don't know. I have to have to study that in my next life. But um, I was convinced from then on that this this wonderful music was uh, co very compatible with, if not the one of the finest expressions of the Christian faith. Albeit much of it, you know, developed in brothels and. Mm -hmm barrel houses and things it was the, probably the only place some of the musicians could play most of the earlier jazz musicians were believers or practiced christianity uh louis armstrong read his bible every day uh, duke ellington said that besides god nothing else matters much i mean and they weren't model people you know who is but they 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 were under a lot of pressure didn't always exhibit the virtues of of uh, sanctification but they gave us this extraordinary music. So um, I've had the the great joy and privilege of being able to be in a jazz band most of my life. And um, uh, Carl's heard some of these concerts. And we currently have a band that's called Renewal. And it's from a song by a man named Monty Alexander, who's a dear friend. And he's a Jamaican-American, probably the greatest jazz pianist on the planet today. It was called Renewal because he found himself coming back to the Lord after a period of darkness. And um, our, you know, frontispiece is this incredible vocalist, Ruth Naomi Floyd, who um, has a four-octave range. She sings at tenth. She, she's very generous with her time. And uh, she is a living embodiment of, of the history of, of gospel music. She grew up in the black church, 
has very strong feelings about race and uh, is generous to share them with you. <laughs> um, so we we have a lot of fun. We have uh, the other black woman in our uh, band is a saxophonist, which is kind of unusual, lady saxophonist. Mm. And so we have these great discussions, and um, I've learned so much about race and music and and so forth from these dear people that I play with. So that's a little bit about. Um, why I love jazz. That gives him so much more credit at the seminary, doesn't it, Carl? It does. Oh, yeah. It does. <laughs> Bill brings a certain sophistication. Bill and myself, I would say, probably the two most <laughs> culturally sophisticated <laughs> members of faculty. Take, you can't take this attention. Place would be finished without us. Art Tatum, greatest jazz pianist of yeah, all time? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, you, when you say greatest, it's a bit like, uh, what's the greatest wine yeah, ever made? It's apples in, and oranges, but he yeah. was but he, he was, was brilliant. Mogan yeah. David Raspberry Wine, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's so, okay. Is he a jazz pianist too? Or is a- <laughs> no, Art Tatum was um, oh, just technically uh, way beyond anybody else, but he had this ability to swing that just um, is inimitable. And we fortunately have his recordings and his versions of different classics are, are you know have come down to us. Now, there's a lot of other wonderful jazz musicians, but... Um, you know, they all always refer when you talk to them to uh, the granddaddy, Art, Art Tatum. As the French call him, Art Tatum. <laughs> so you think it's perfectly legitimate then for Christians to enjoy life? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's not only legitimate, but it's a, it's a requirement. Um, as long as we do it, you know, with sobriety and, and, and we thank the source of life. Yeah, it's it would be very sad if if all we had were a, a gray functional world. C.S. Lewis somewhere says God could have given us, you know, pills and we would have been nourished, but he gave us delightful fruits and vegetables mm-hmm. and meats and you know how he describes things. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a balance because there are Christians who enjoy life in a in an irresponsible way. You know, and they produce what I call happiness rather than joy because they don't realize the darker side and they don't come out of um, a realism. And so the, the Christians I admire most are ones who, who have really suffered and wrestled with sin but have a certain confidence and joy to them nevertheless. Question. Uh, I was chatting to, to Rusty Reno. He had his first things uh, a couple of weeks ago. and you know, He does a lot of rounds, but he speaks on campuses and he speaks on you know, conservative evangelical campuses. And I, I mentioned to him, you know, what was the most striking thing? And he, he made the comment that the degree of penetration of the language of therapy hmm. among yeah. Protestant evangelical young people was the thing that most surprised him. Do you have any comments or thoughts on that, Bill? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. Uh, we're living in a therapeutic culture. Um, and so instead of absolutes, right and wrong, uh, we we are inappropriate, or we're insensitive, or we've reduced sin to things like, um, yeah, un, yeah, unhealthy, unhelpful, um, and um, it's astonishing how much that language has has come down to us. You expect it of of the world, you know, people to say to talk about self esteem, and yeah. um, but you don't expect uh, Christians to talk like that. You know, we should. We should have a very low self-esteem if, if we're honest. Um, so I, I think he's right. Um, I think that goes back to this sources of the self uh, kind of thing, because if you don't have objective truth, you don't have a grid that defines who you are, uh, the Ten Commandments, whatever it is, um, there's no other place uh, uh, that's a legitimate source but the self. 
And Sartre said this years ago. You know, he talked about authentic faith, which is be true to yourself, no matter how many um, barriers you have to go through, how many idols you have to break. And if you if you act in accordance with a preset bunch of values, you have bad faith. And that's, you know, an, a philosophical expression of this more therapeutic world where you need to be authentic, you need to be real, you mm-hmm. need to be the real deal, um, walk the walk, talk the talk, all that language. And uh, some of it's right in parts, but it's not biblical at all. It's not a, a biblical view of the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's remarkable that Philip Reeve's book, Triumph of the Therapeutic, was written 50 years ago, and it's proved more true than he could ever imagine. Very prescient. The prophet of the great coming darkness. Yep. It's yep. a powerful book. I really see the um, the books marketed to women in the Christian genre are just full mm-hmm. of this therapeutic language mm-hmm. and therapeutic solutions, really. Mm-hmm. The, the gospel presentation is missing the strong language of holiness and sin, yeah. repentance, yeah. Um, because it's all being um, substituted by this therapeutic language. Yeah. So it's more about this healing of the self mm-hmm. than um, getting right with a holy God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It reduces the gospel because it reduces sin from yeah. lawlessness to you know like a lack of wholeness, which certainly a a, a, a result Secondary of sin, issue, yeah. of right. sin, but sin yeah. is fundamentally lawlessness yeah. for which we we have to have a propitiation. It, it's possible that the the father of that was Schleiermacher, mm-hmm. who way back in the early nineteenth century said yeah. sin is selfishness. Yeah. yeah. And there's a component to it, sure. but that it's yeah. not as law-breaking. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. rebellion. Yeah. And doctrine becomes an expression or projection of religious psychology. Yeah. I mean, the the whole the collapse of belief in di- divine impassibility and immutability, I think, is connected to this. Mm-hmm. I was very struck. That's a good point. Maybe it was 12, 18 months ago. Todd Billings, who we've had on this program, did an excellent article in First Things on uh, divine. I think it was divine impassibility is pastoral doctrine. And of course, Todd is writing with the perspective of somebody dying from cancer. Right. And for him, divine immutability and impassibility are absolutely central as mm. pastoral doctrines. Mm. And that's so counterintuitive right. today. We want yeah. God to suffer with us. Only, making the point, no, yeah. it's the fact that God doesn't suffer with us that makes him so helpful. Mm. I had an open theist tell me once that the last thing suffering people need is a sovereign God. Yeah. I wow. Said, Sorry, but that's the first thing. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. He, and that blows my mind. He mm. sent Jesus, to, and he has suffered, so he knows about that, but it's not, if he were part of the problem, we would have no hope. Exactly. Exactly. Wow, this has been such a good conversation. Thank you so much right, for talking so with us today. And uh, we wanted to be able to give away copies of your new book, Does Christianity Really Work? So if you head on over to our website, mortificationofspin.org, you can enter to win yourself a copy of Does Christianity Really Work? by William Edgar. Thanks for being with us today. You're very welcome. Great pleasure. And thanks for listening. Uh, remember that we are a donor-supported podcast, so we appreciate your prayers and, and any financial aid that you'd like to give to us through the website. We appreciate that, too, and we will talk with you next time. Creeping along the riverside Hiding in the night The time now to get on board the 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... He nails it there. That's yeah. so much... Modern micro-identity politics is being driven by powerful vested interests who have, you know, a, as I've suggested, a vested interest in the fragmentation of human identity along lines which they themselves determine. True diversity is united from above. And so diversity has to do really almost exclusively with um, uh, exotic sexual proclivities, um, skin color, but nothing at all to do with actually the way people think. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I say croissant. We say croissant. I don't, I don't say croissant because I'm not French. That's what cracked me up when I owned the coffee shop because we had this like <laughs> breakfast croissant. And uh-huh. um, they would, can I have the ham and cheese croissant? You know, like the name. <laughs> I'm American. I have an American accent. I say croissant, but not croissant. We make so much fun of that. <laughs> and order. if I'm ever with you and you say croissant, I'm walking away. <laughs>